Welcome to this Lunar Society podcast that features a lecture by Professor Simon Schaffer. We're here at Birmingham City University, guests of Professor Julian Beer, Deputy Vice-Chancellor. Our speaker today is Professor Simon Schaffer, a Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. Professor Schaffer is also a frequent presenter on TV and radio, including the highly acclaimed BBC series Light Fantastic, as well as being the author and co-author of several books. Good, good evening, everyone. I think everyone's got teas, coffees, waters, and there's orange at the back if you've not had it. Um, I'm Professor Julian Beer, and I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor here at Birmingham City University. Um, and I'll just come in for just a few moments just to welcome you to Birmingham City University and our city centre campus, which, if you look out the window, is a, an ever-evolving landscape uh, with new buildings, with cranes in the background. HS2 is literally going to be on our lawn, uh, the terminus, as long as the government uh, settle on whatever, whatever policy they're going to settle on. Uh, HS2 phase one and two happens, indeed. So, great backdrop. I'm ashamed that the, uh, the fog has come in and you can't see the full moon tonight. Because I, I understand most of you travel under the, uh, under the full moon. Uh, I was going to welcome you as the, the lunatics this evening. And uh, that's very apt in this place. So it feels like sometimes working here. So, um, just a little context. This, I took this photo. Um, and I thought, it's very, very apt. Because my daughter persuaded me on Saturday afternoon... Um, we had some time, just myself and my daughter, my wife and son were doing something else. And she said, Dad, you've never been into the Erasmus Darwin house, have you, in Litchfield? She said, uh, I went to the school. So she said, it's absolutely fantastic. It's about science. It's about the interaction between the different disciplines. It's all the things you do uh, as a professor in socioeconomics, uh, working with engineers, with creatives, with artists, etc. You'd love it. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, uh, I'll come in. Three hours later, uh, I walked out of there. Um, absolutely fantastic experience, looking at the history and the evolution of the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment. So I thought it was very apt. I thought I'd take this, take this photo and uh, just remind myself who you all are and who you represent as an organisation. And I didn't want to insult you by calling you lunatics without this slide in the background. It's not my terminology. It was Erasmus Darwin, as you all probably know. So, once again, welcome to the university. Um, it's a delight to have you here, and hopefully we can host you again uh, going into the future. And I wish you all the best uh, for this evening's event. My forgiveness for not attending your lecture. I've got another um, ceremony I've got to go to in, uh, in the city. But uh, I wish you all the best. Enjoy Birmingham City University. And I hope you have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now I'll disappear. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good. Um, welcome, everybody. My name's Jackie Smith. I'm the chair of the Lunar Society. And to start, uh, obviously, I'd like to thank Julian and Birmingham City University for hosting this lecture. Uh, this evening. It's an important part of our way of working in the Lunar Society to try to build partnerships with organisations across the city and more widely to sort of maximise 
our impact and to uh, maximise the number of people who are able to be involved in Lunar Society uh, events. You've heard a little bit about um, the history of the Lunar Society and you're going to hear even uh, more soon. So I won't go uh, back into all of that history, simply to remind people that one of the challenges for us in the Lunar Society uh, and in fact the reason why there weren't more of us to welcome you when you arrived was because we were having a, an executive committee meeting uh, next door and we were thinking about the forthcoming programme and the way in which we think about uh, our mission uh, and one of our uh, members actually made an extremely good and I think pertinent comment about how what we do in the Lunar Society, I'm never afraid to nick other people's good phrases by the way, what we do in the Lunar Society is that we drive forward but we use the rear view mirror and what we learn from the past to help to inform the way in which we uh, stimulate ideas and broaden debates and catalyse action. So being able to understand our heritage, particularly as the Lunar Society, but also in the wider programme that we put on, being able to think about how we apply that to the challenges of today is what we try to achieve in the range of events uh, that we put on. So uh, that's what we're aiming to do uh, in the Lunar Society. I'm really delighted uh, to be able to welcome Professor Simon Sheffer this evening. I mean, one of the other things that we try to do as well as uh, in, making links with other organisations across the city is we encourage our members to come forward with ideas that will be something that others will want to uh, take up. So for that reason I owe Stella Sims, one of our long-standing uh, members, uh, very many uh, thanks because it was Stella who met Simon and came forward with the idea to the society that this would be a good uh, event and uh, a good and interesting lecture. So thank you very much Stella for that and can I invite anybody else who has inspiration to come forward to us because we're always keen to hear uh, ideas. So let me introduce um, Simon for um, his lecture. He is the Professor of the History of Science in the Department of History and the Philosophy of Science at the University uh, of Cambridge. He has a distinguished uh, academic uh, career in particular, his research addresses the practices, materials and organisation of scientific inquiry between the 17th and 19th centuries, concentrating on astronomy, natural philosophy, technology and the physical sciences. So that it's clear that his research exactly falls in the period, uh, the original period of activity uh, of the uh, Lunar Society and the work that they were, they were doing in um, Birmingham. He's got, interestingly as well, in terms of the relevance for us in the Lunar Society, long experience as a collaborator with museum and gallery projects and uh, collections. He's currently a member of the advisory board of the Science Museum. One of the other things that we're doing this year in the 250th anniversary of the death of James Watt is working with... Uh, uh, the museum uh, in, and the library in Birmingham to develop uh, activities around that bicentenary. So we're also very keen to make those uh, relationships. Uh, he's been a presenter, uh, he is a presenter on the television, having presented on the BBC, in particular the series Light Fantastic that was broadcast uh, on uh, BBC4. So he brings an enormous range of academic and research background to the lecture that he's going to give uh, this evening. 
And you may, if any of you have a £50 note in your pocket, hand, no, not hand it over. <laughs> if you have a £50 note in your pocket, and this just shows that I very rarely ever see, let alone have a £50 note, uh, apparently our, our founders, Bolton and Watt, are on the current uh, £50 uh, note, but there is a task, is it, I think that is still ongoing, to find a new uh, person or people to go on the £50 uh, note. And Simon uh, is part of the advisory committee uh, to enable that to happen. The decision has been made, I think, that it should be somebody uh, from a scientific uh, background whose work has shaped how we think about the world and who continue to inspire people today. But given some of the controversy that there has been around who we put on our banknotes, I suspect you've taken on quite a difficult task there, Simon. Uh, there will be no controversy, only interest, and I hope intelligent questions from the Lunar Society uh, this evening. On behalf of the Lunar Society, can I give you a very warm welcome? Right, I need the clicker. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming to this extremely elevated place. Um, and I can't guarantee enlightenment. Um, I also won't guarantee uh, anything original, because I'm talking to precisely the group of people who know at least as much, and in most cases that I've met so far this evening, much, much more about the topic I'm going to address than I do. So all I've got is originality rather than novelty. Um, as you know, so I'm going to have to do this quite a bit, aren't I? Um, the Lunar Society, the original one, uh, which you so brilliantly continue and embroider and innovate with, was a gathering of about a dozen men based here and in the environs of Birmingham and the West Midlands between the 1760s and 90s. And again, as you know, it's long been identified as a progenitor of the English Enlightenment. And I'll have something to say about what that might be or have been. And a major focus of the nation's industrial development. It's been described, as you see here, as, quote, intellectually the most effective provincial group that ever came together in England, unquote. However... During the lifetime of its members, the society, and this I think is important, as I hope to show, was barely visible to outsiders. Not much outreach, and thank goodness, not much impact. No learned memoirs appeared under its auspices. No grand assemblies were organised by its fellowship. The quote that I have on the screen is from the son of the botanist William Withering, the splendidly named naturalist and botanist. If you were called Withering, what job would you choose? Um, according to him, it was one of the best private philosophical clubs in the kingdom, with a strong emphasis on private. It was broken up when Tory reaction in the wake of events in France brought politics too near to its otherwise tranquil deliberations. It was broken up 
when Tory reaction in the wake of events in France brought politics too near to its otherwise tranquil deliberations. The society's existence and activities survive for us, therefore, in a private world of letters and diaries and the grander stuff of engines and ceramics, canals and clocks, maps and catalogues. I'll want to suggest that key to the society was its relationship with elsewhere. And the most important elsewhere with which it established relations was enlightened France in particular. There are many stories one could tell about what those relations were and why they mattered. Let me just check. Press, press the pause button, Shapa. You can see the image. Yeah. Fine. We don't need to darken it. It, it would be ironic if talking about enlightenment. <laughs> and you can just read the text at the back. Yeah, okay, cool. So on the left, one of the most notorious lunar society relations with the French Enlightenment, the Swiss Enlightenment in this case, the young and very brilliant and extremely eccentric Thomas Day, campaigner against the slave trade, writer of children's books, um, who in the 1770s meets the political exile, 1760s, sorry, meets the great Swiss Geneva political exile, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, and inspired, if that's the word I'm looking for, which it probably isn't, by Rousseau, Day, as many of you will know, um, essentially appropriated a young girl from a Shrewsbury orphanage, Sabrina Sidney, and brought her up in enlightened principles and attempted to marry her before she had a breakdown and returned. Not an exemplary experiment and a scandal even at the time. On the other hand, on the right, much more consequential and perhaps less damaging, less sanguinary relations between Watt and Bolton and Wedgwood on the one hand and French industry and science on the other. Absolutely fundamental for any understanding of what the lunar men were doing is that set of relations. What Bolton and Wedgwood, as you will know, I imagine, devoted a huge amount of political and commercial energy to negotiate a free trade deal, a frictionless border <laughs> with France. A treaty was concluded in 1786, this after, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 98 years of more or less continuous warfare with France, a treaty which led to one of the great periods of economic expansion and boom, both here and in France in the late 1780s. And this was accompanied by <coughs> extremely important missions from the West Midlands to Paris and central France to investigate scientific, technical and industrial installations like the one you see here, 
the single largest set of water wheels in Europe at the time, the Mali machine near Versailles. You can still <coughs> see bits of it when you visit Versailles. And at the same time, very intense negotiations and exchanges with the leading French natural philosophers and chemists, notably Antoine Lavoisier and Claude Berthelet, whom you see on the right, um, developing recipes for bleaching, one of the most important industrial processes at the time. James Kerr, top right, another lunar man, brilliant uh, Scottish-trained um, chemical entrepreneur and industrialist, exploited those processes. He wrote a dictionary to translate English into French and French into English in chemistry and was a protagonist of what we historians call the chemical revolution. So those are two examples, one terrible, one rather admirable, of what I think most distinguishes what the lunar men were about. What they were about, perhaps more than anything else, was to make what worked in one place work elsewhere, and in principle everywhere. Such replication, technical term, has long been crucial for any experiment and any invention whose acceptance depends on effective copies functioning in other places, just as the person who makes them predicts. The translation of skills and the movement of commodities was what the Enlightenment was about, more than anything else. So um, these uh, maps, which are made by uh, French colleagues from uh, the École des Institutes in Paris, show you the sum of the infrastructure on which the Lunar Society relied. Although it was a private club, it read. It read hugely. And what it read were the results that could be read in these journals. So these are maps of the scientific and technical periodicals that were being published in Europe and its colonies during the 18th century. On the left, um, the set of such periodicals as they were roughly in 1760. The size of the circle is proportional to the number of periodicals published in that city. So you see Paris is by far the most important centre of techno-scientific publication. And on the right, 1790, when you see a massive European expansion, but also the summoning into existence of journals elsewhere in the world under European aegis. Top left, it's not an accurate map, sorry about that, Boston and Philadelphia, and far to the right, Calcutta, where a journal of this kind started in 1792. That was the kind of network on which the lunar men relied. However, while many of these publishers and printers claimed that texts were stable and transportable, carriers of knowledge, and claimed, too, that this was because what I think we can call without anachronism the social network of mechanization and standardization made them so, just as now, so then, the social network was extremely unreliable in all sorts of ways. Rather, as the lunar men's activities show, considerable 
Huge amounts of labor and industry were required simply to maintain the identity and reliability of allegedly secure and translatable goods. The very notion of a private or a public commodity was at stake for the lunar men. The society's enterprises were full to overflowing, as many of you will know, of attempts that were often frustrated, sometimes, I have to say, rarely brilliantly successful, to get their skills and techniques and goods to work away from home. When the preeminent lunar man, my hero, the great chemist Joseph Priestley, the Jeffrey Boycott of 18th century science, <laughs> announced that marsh gas contained a highly inflammable component, his fellow lunar friends waded through bogs trying the test to no avail. Um, ben Franklin, who, as you saw earlier, was one of their most eminent visitors, said that testing Priestley's theory had exacerbated his gout in this vain quest. No enlightenment, lots of pain. Priestley's attempts to get other chemists to copy these experiments the equipment is top left, was significantly and closely connected with the preeminent skill of Josiah Wedgwood at mass-producing identical goods, especially pots and glassware. It's important, it seems to me, as a, another example of lunar enterprise, to compare with this the rival, if decisive, endeavours of Withering and of Erasmus Darwin to classify and catalogue all British flowers under a workable system of identification. Thank you for listening to this Lunar Society podcast. If you'd like to learn more or become a member, visit lunarsociety.org.uk.